From Johannesburg to Jerusalem, the world is always changing, growing and innovating. Join Benji Shulman for the next hour as he brings you the trendsetters, the thought leaders and those creating news before it happens. Only on the New Blue Review, your favorite Jewish culture and current affairs show. Every Monday at 9 a.m. right here on 101.9 High FM. You're listening to 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Benji Shulman, and this is the New Blue Review. Welcome to the program on this Monday morning. Good to be with you this first show of 2023. I am happy to say that we have online with us Mark Oppenheimer. He is a practicing advocate at the Johannesburg Bar and an expert in the area of constitutional law. And the reason I thought we would bring him on is because there is a lot of debate going on at the moment around the Supreme Court of Israel, the Knesset, and there's been mass protests all over the place about government changes that are being proposed that would change the way that the Supreme Court in Israel operates in its relationship with the Knesset, with the parliament in Israel. And so I thought we'd get Mark on, obviously to talk about what's going on in Israel, but just in general to explain courts or courts in general are important when it comes to legislation, why legislatures are important and how the two work together and understand how it works both here in South Africa and in Israel. Mark, thank you for joining us on the New Blue Review and welcome to the show. So let's just start off with some of the basics around what is causing the interest in this particular topic. For a start, why do we have parliaments and courts to deal with problems in society? Why don't we just have one group of places and, and what is their different role? Well, one way of thinking about it is to refer to Lord Acton's famous quote that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So if you have one system which has all the power, there is a strong reason to believe that it will abuse that power. Modern Western democracies tend to have a separation of powers and checks and balances. So we have three different branches of government. You've got the executive, so the president, the army, the police force. You've got the legislature, whose job it is to pass legislation. And then you've got the judiciary, whose job it is to interpret the law and to apply the law. And the idea is that they each have little checks over each other. So the judiciary are traditionally sort of seen as the weakest branch of government because they have no purse and no army. And really what's, what they do to kind of gain legitimacy is through public reason. So you can read the decisions of a judge, and you can see how they got that answer, and that's meant to be a compelling reason to think that it's legitimate. Now, there are different ways in which judges can be appointed. So that's one way of ensuring that your judiciary doesn't get out of hand. You can appoint the correct people, different systems you can have. So, for example, in America, you have the president having that ability to appoint judges to the Supreme Court. They only have nine judges there, and those judges are there for life. And so the idea of a president being able to appoint a seat is a big power because you can shape the future of the court for many years to come. There are some judges who have sat in excess of 30 years. There is a confirmation process, so the Senate in America will sit and they'll decide whether or not that judge ought to be confirmed, and you need a simple majority. In South Africa, we have something different, so it's not just after the president. We have the Judicial Services Commission, and there's, I think, roughly about 23 different people who sit on this, and it's meant to be a range of politicians, academics, and lawyers, and it's headed by the Chief Justice. Now... In South Africa, we've seen how heavily politicized it's been. David Winsalter, for example, had applied to become a judge at the Constitutional Court on a number of occasions. 
was publicly lambasted on the grounds that he was viewed as being supportive of Israel or working for the Jewish border deputies doing charity work. So there's this concern that you can have this heavy politicization. In Israel, they have a nine-member committee, also distributed in different ways. So you have justice, you have two members of the traditionally, one from the coalition, that's government, and one from the opposition. You then have, you have a judge, and you have some members of the bar associate. And in order to appoint a judge to their highest court, Supreme Court, you need at least seven to agree. And one of the reasons why people have been upset by this is that the committee members that tend to remain constant are the ones that are part of the bar association and those that are the that are judges. And I think they hold four of the five seats, which means they have an effective veto. So the proposed change is to say that the composition should shift. It's not that you'd be able to push in whoever you like, because you're still going to get the seven, but people that you want, that the, the judges and the lawyers don't want, can't be vetoed. So that's one of the proposed changes that's been put in place. We'll get to those issues of the actual court and what's being proposed to be changed in a minute. I think that there's some, some other parts which are also kind of important, because one of the big differences that we have in between South Africa and Israel is that here we have a parliamentary system, the same as Israel does. It's also what's called a representative parliamentary system. You, know, you vote and percentage-wise your party gets in. That's the same as Israel. The difference, though, is that in South Africa we don't have, or do have, rather, a constitution, whereas in Israel they don't. And so basically the laws that are passed effectively by the Knesset are supposed to be completely the will of the people. And in South Africa, you can pass something in, in Parliament, but then it can be struck down by the Constitutional Court if it's not deemed controversial. Ah, constitutional, rather. It's always deemed controversial. How does it work in Israel where they don't have a constitution, but the High Court there, or the Supreme Court, has the opportunity to, to, to strike down legislation? Because I, I gather that that's part of what's causing some of the problems. Yes. So the Constitution has been controversial in Israel. So if you look at the Declaration of Independence, they said, within a couple of months, we will have a written Constitution. And then the War of Independence broke out. And no written Constitution has ever come to fruition. What you do have are a set of what they call basic laws, which set out the different powers of government and sets out the powers of the judiciary. The view for a long time was that judges don't have the power of judicial review that you have parliamentary sovereignty, which means that whatever parliament says, that is the final word on it in terms of whether the law stands. Judges could interpret it, but they couldn't say the law is being struck down on the grounds that it's unconstitutional. South Africa during apartheid was also a parliamentary sovereignty system. So a parliament could produce laws, many of which were racist, dubious laws, and they couldn't be struck down on the grounds that they were unconstitutional. Now, there was actually a sort of revolutionary change in Israel in 1992. With the introduction of further basic laws, the chief justice there decided that actually we have now been invested with the power of judicial review, and we can now strike down laws that are at odds with these basic laws. And so they have vested themselves with that power. That itself has been controversial because there is no explicit law which grants judges that power of judicial review. However, in South Africa, it's not explicit either. The view is that it's implicit that judges have this power. In the States, it wasn't explicit either, but there's a case called Murray versus Madison from the 1800s where judges said, well, if we have a constitution and it's judicial, then surely we can strike down laws that are unconstitutional. And so they've exercised this power. So I gather that there's some upset about either laws being struck down or government policies being struck down by the court. And that I think a lot of this 
in practice seems to go down to whether allowing a certain settlement to stand will be overturned by the court or not. And so this has become an issue of contestation. What the proposal... So the basic rules that you referred to, I mean, are, are they also passed by the by the Knesset? Because you're saying they sort of have these quasi-constitutional, quasi-constitutional vestments in them powers, but do you need like a two-thirds majority or is it just they can be passed sort of on a majority? Yes, yeah, so they are ordinary laws. They can be passed by a majority. And so some of those laws, for example, were passed 23 to 0. So I think you have 120 people that's committed. So you don't even need a quorum to be there. But there are some exceptions. One of the basic laws, I think it's about dignity and freedom, requires 61 members to approve its change. So that would be a majority if everyone sat. And uh, there's one on occupation, I think, which requires a supermajority, I think, of eight. And otherwise, the laws don't require that. Our constitution is quite explicit. Uh, if you want to change something in Section 1 of our Constitution, you require 75% of parliamentarians to change it. Change a section of the Bill of Rights in two-thirds. So, and that's entrenched in our Constitution. The Constitution itself tells you that. But there, because there is no written Constitution, the laws themselves can have these sort of built-in hurdles, but there's no overarching principle on that front. So one of the issues then is the issue of, as you as you're saying, this issue of of being able to strike down and when and the way that they're trying to solve it or, or propose change, from what I understand, is what they're calling an override claw in in the way that the Knesset operates. You do you want to explain to us what the idea of the override is going to be? Yes. Yeah, so the view would be that if a law or decision of the Knesset is invalidated by the court, that unless there is, I think, a full full-based decision, in other words, all 15 members of the court are unanimous, then Parliament will have the power with its own majority to set aside the court's ruling. So this would be like a further check on the court's power. What you find in South Africa is that once a court has said this law is unconstitutional, what it does often is say to to Parliament, you need to redraft this. Our job is not to write laws. Our job is to tell you whether a law is constitutional. Our court will occasionally create an interim reading and to avoid chaos. So they'll say, this is what the law will look like for the next two years. If Parliament doesn't make a change, then it'll stand, but they provide the opportunity to Parliament, partly for legitimacy reasons. You know, judges are not elected by the people, parliamentarians are, so they don't want to overstep. Now, one reason to, to think that there's a concern about giving judges too much power is that you can create these crises of legitimacy. So... In America, you had 49 years of controversy over Roe versus Wade. What the court did in Roe was to say the American Constitution has a, a right to privacy in it. That right to privacy means that a woman has privacy rights over her body. Therefore, states cannot legislate against abortions and unless they meet certain requirements. And then what the court did was basically produce legislation. It says we're going to have a trimester system um, that up until the first trimester, there can be no abridgment of the woman's rights whatsoever. Up until the second, they can be some abridgments, and up until the third, further abridgments. So what you had was a court basically writing a statute. By the way, this Labyrinth Constitution has a very explicit right to privacy. It also has a very explicit right to reproductive health care and control of your body. I think it's pretty obvious that we have a constitutional right to abortion in our constitution. The Americans don't have a right to privacy. This was interpreted by the courts. So what you had was people saying, well, we think that this should be a state's rights issue. This should be an issue that the people can determine themselves. And the only way that you could change it was through new rulings in the court. And so what you had was litigation throughout the year. So my two, the Planned Parenthood case, where there was a challenge to Roe, um, parts of Roe are seen as, as parents, and they changed. And then very recently last year, 
we had a wholesale removal of right, which meant that now the courts basically said the Constitution was silent on the question of abortion, it's up for the federal government to decide or for states to decide. But you had this 49-year struggle, and the view was political appointments at the court are very important. So when Republicans would get in, they were trying to appoint judges that they thought would overturn. When Democrats were appointing, they would say, are you going to keep Roe in place? So the difficulty with giving courts this unlimited power, I can check on it, is that you can politicize the judiciary. And so this is a fact. So, so the, the example you're giving in America is very interesting because effectively what you're saying is that the court made a decision that people felt was more responsive to, to the democracy. It should have been up to people to decide or states to decide. Obviously, sort of issues like privacy or, or, or autonomy tend to come under constitutional rubrics. I don't want to debate the actual merits of Roe versus Wade. But what you do have in America is a lot more checks in the, in the form of Congress, which is directly re- represented. You've got Senate, which is got the, basically represents the states. There's a lot of, and of course you've got the president who signs bills into power as well. So there's quite a lot of process that you have to go through in terms of, of what can be done. And the court is powerful, but not all powerful. What's interesting in the case of Israel and South Africa is that we have this parliamentary system, which is a representative system. So it's basically controlled by the political parties because they decide who are the, in the lists that go to the parliament. So the parliament doesn't have as strong an oversight function or it's got weaker oversight capabilities than, than certainly than, than Congress does. And we've seen how poor South Africa oversight has been in parliament. Yes, it's probably slightly better, but it's still effectively the party that gets into parliament elects the president. And so the, the parliament or the Knesset is, is quite close to the, the party in power. So the executive and the, and the parliament operate very close together. Does that not, in the case of these sorts of parliamentary systems, then make the case for a, for a stronger court to help check any kind of power abuses by legislators because they're not really so strong on oversight because of their connection to the executive? Yes. So one of the questions I suppose you've got to ask is, what system would you like in the abstract, given the nature of human beings? So if you think that people are going to use their positions of power often for their own purposes as opposed to for other people, uh, then having an oversight body seems quite important. And working on what the extent of those powers is seems quite important. The advantage that you have if you have bad politicians in place is that you can remove them from power. You can, in the next election, vote for somewhere else. Israeli politics is incredibly fluid. I mean, you've had, I think, what's six elections in the last couple of years, big changes in government. There's never a party that has outright control. Here we've had anti-hegemony. They always have coalition. So if you don't like what the party in power is doing, you work for someone else. What do you do if you don't like what the judges are doing? If you think that the judges are no longer interpreting law but creating their own rules, that they've got an agenda that they're using that runs contrary to the will of the people. Well, as a citizen, you can do nothing. You can't vote the judges out. That generally, because you want your judges to be independent and free from fear, especially when they have to decide against the state, make it very, very hard for the executive or parliament to remove them. So, for example, in South Africa, there's an impeachment hearing scheduled for Judge Robert, and he's being, in the interim, suspended by President Raposa. But that's the only instance we have. And the litany of sinister things that Klope is accused of, but it's very hard to find any other kind of situation like that. This is a difficult balance to try and work out how you want your system proposed. It does seem like there's a worry with parliament having total power, where it can produce legislation which is unconscionable and that it's going to stick around for good. What you've had is that the opposition parties have said as soon as they come into power, if those rules were put in place, they would remove them. Now, 
I've always said that when you craft legislation, you must think of crafting a weapon and you must think that I won't always be the one who holds this weapon, that one day my opponents across the aisle will be able to pick it up and bludgeon you across the head with it. And it may very well be the case that as much as the opposition said we would abolish the sinister rule, once they get it, they'd say, actually, we thought about it and we quite like this power. We're also a little bit worried about the judges and we, we don't really like what our opponents are doing. Don't worry, we'll use it properly. We want to use the power like our opponents. It's, it's very rare that when people have power that they divest themselves of it voluntarily. You're listening to 101.9 KFM. I'm Benji Shulman. This is the New Blue Review. Talking today to Mark Oppenheimer, who is an advocate at the Johannesburg Bar and an expert in constitutional issues. This is the New Blue Review with Benji Shulman. We're back with 101.9 KFM. I'm Benji Shulman. Talking today to Mark Oppenheimer, advocate at the Johannesburg Bar with an interest in constitutional issues. Talking today about the debates around the Israeli High Court and some of the changes that are being promoted by the current government that are causing so much controversy and also looking at some of the different systems around the world, including our own and in America. Mark, what are some of the other changes that the Netanyahu government is proposing to make in terms of these new laws that are on the table with regards to the High Court? As far as I understand, one of the changes would be looking at the standards used by the courts when invalidating the decisions of government, that the current standard is to determine whether the decision is reasonable or not, and that if the court deems it not to be reasonable, then it can then be set aside, and the nearest to ship that. Now, that is quite a low standard. So in South Africa, you can review the decisions of administrators, and you can declare legislation unconstitutional and violates the constitution, and we have a, not just does it breach a section of the Constitution, but, you know, could there be a reasonable limitation on that right? And you go through a kind of proportionality test. Reasonableness is taken into account, but our new standard is, is higher in the sense that we say, is it so unreasonable that no reasonable person could have made this decision? That's quite different versus saying, well, reasonable people can disagree, and we as the court disagree, and so we're deciding what you're going to do. Um, and so there might very well be reason to think that the standard for judicial review ought to be elevated for some of the policy reasons I mentioned earlier, that the judges are unelected and really do want a small number of people being able to decide the fate of a nation. But take us back to the Roe example that I mentioned earlier. I would think that most reasonable people think that women should have some kind of a right to abortion. Now, I imagine that when the Supreme Court in America made their decision, they said, well, the right in the Constitution says that your rights to life, liberty, and property cannot be limited without due process. Quilt and row interpret this to mean that you have a, a right to privacy. Imagine that it's something else. Imagine they said, you have a substantive right to life. And that right to life starts at conception. And you can never have an abortion. And you can never do anything to this decision through legislation. You can't, through your democratic world, change this rule. No matter how much you want the right to an abortion across the land, you can't have it because us nine unelected judges have proclaimed it. And we've said that there's this right. I think there'd be a civil war. I think you'd have a huge agility crisis. People would just stop following the decisions of the court. There are reasons to think that once your court strays into territory of deciding the fate of the people, that it must do so on the correct premises, and it must do so vested in lawful authority. And there's some debate as to whether the court really does have this review power and whether it has that review power at the standard of mere reasonableness. Let me put it to you the other way, okay? When we had... Jacob Zuma, and he was building in Kandla. And we had this case where he had to, finding by the public protector that he had to pay back the money. And this had to be, if I remember correctly, it had to be supported in favor by, by parliament. And parliament 
uh, sort of refused to to do its job. And because it was too connected to Jacob Zuma, it wouldn't hold him accountable. And so the decision was taken to the courts, I think by some of the opposition parties. And it was really only because the constitutional court was running the following the constitution, and according to our model, that that we were ever able to get an incumbent judgment and eventually Zuma out of power in some respect because he was held accountable. It worries me in the in the Israeli system because the, there isn't that much. There's there's only one parliament that is pretty sovereign. You have the high court, which can strike down stuff at the moment, but doesn't do it that often. Given the lack of institutions, it's a small country in Israel. Is there not an argument from the opposition to say that we on the side more of a a stronger judiciary because there's not a lot of checks that can actually be used to 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 prevent an overrun of, of, of rights by a Knesset. A couple of thoughts. So there's this great play called A Man for All Seasons. It's about Henry VIII. And one of the questions that's put by one of the characters, it says, you would hunt down the devil and he's running through the forest. Would you chop down every tree that you could to find it? And he says, of course. He says, I would destroy the whole forest to find the devil. And he says... Well, where would you hide when the devil comes for you after you've chopped down the entire forest? Once we start to bend the rules, because we see a certain devil that we want to obliterate, we now have to live with those consequences. And that's what we would be had with the encounter judging. So everybody took the view, Jacob Zuma is a crook. The guy clearly is a crook. He robbed the nation, deserves everything that's coming to him. But one of the things that was open for question was, does the public protector have binding authority when those reports are issued? Are there mere recommendations or must you comply with them? And the view of from the beginning was their mere recommendations. If you read all the tip for prize and said, this office is different from all the other offices because it has moral authority, but it doesn't have binding authority. Constitutional court said, no, it's binding. And here's the difficulty. You said, yeah, victory. We're going to watch Jacob Zuma. He's going to pay back the money. But so it wasn't public protected for much longer. Yeah, when you vote protected, you know, has the power to produce reports that are binding. And many people think that she's doing things that are awful for the country. People aren't big fans of the public protector because it's not about a person. It's about the office. So, there's that worry when you start to bend the rules. The other one is Israel different from South Africa. It is. In a sense, Africa, we have hegemonic rule from one party. We have a basically one-party state for now, but that may very well change in future elections. In Israel, you don't have that. You have enormous power over over the parliamentarians. You just vote for someone else, and those coalitions can crumble at a moment's notice. People can say, I don't like what you're doing. I'm not going to support this anymore. The coalition crumbles, and you have another election. So there is a different situation, and you might think in such a situation, that because you've got so many different interests at stake in Israel and that it's possible for new coalitions to change the laws of their predecessors, that you can live with them having more power than they would in South Africa. Very, very interesting. So, so Mark, this debate is going on in in Israel at the moment. Do you have a sense about where do you think it's going or what what kind of effects would we like to see down the road? Well, I think one of the things that seems to cloud the issue is that Netanyahu is facing a criminal charge, and I think that there is a member of the Knesset who's in his coalition who may not be able to take up his seat because he's been convicted of the crime, and that issue is currently before the courts. And so a lot of the reporting will say, well, all these changes that initially are really about creating a gun and pointing at the issue's head so that you can get a favorable outcome. doesn't seem like any of the particular changes would have an effect on either of these two cases. I haven't seen an argument for how it could happen, so the only argument I can understand is that it's a threat. To say, if you don't decide in our favor, we're going to change the system to the judiciary's detriment, and so you better go our way. And so that's a possibility. I think real politics really does play its way in Israel. The fact that you have, I think it's 80,000 people taking to the streets, shows that there is a, a lot of concern about the Chinese. 
doesn't mean the concern is legitimate. Is it based on good evidence? Is it based on misapprehension? People have raised concerns about the national judiciary for a long time, the feeling that the system is, is rigged against certain political orientations in Israel and that they wanted reform, that whatever time they'd ask for the reform, they'd always be seen as a reason why it was somehow inappropriate to ask for it. No. And I, I don't have a crystal ball, so I can't see how it's going to go. So my bet is that if the changes come through, they'll be a lot less dramatic. Well, absolutely fascinating stuff and something we'll definitely be keeping an eye on. But thank you so much for joining us on the show today and just explaining to us some of the basics about what really is at stake and what actually the, the whole argument is about. That's Mark Oppenheimer. He is an advocate and uh, actually we talk about it, but a philosopher and all sorts of other interesting things, bringing us some perspectives on the debate around the Supreme Court in Israel.